0: of times. Verse 7 is up on, the, up on the screen, but I want to read a few verses after that. Notice what the psalmist says. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. What is interesting in those Uh, verses 7, 8, and 9, we have a a multitude of words that are used to describe the scripture. You have in verse 7, the law of the Lord. The second part of verse 7, the testimony of the Lord. Verse 8, the statutes of the Lord. And then in the latter part of verse 8, the commandments of the Lord. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord there, actually a reference to scripture, a reference to God's word, the judgments of the Lord. Okay, so you have these synonyms, if you will, that is used by the psalmist to describe God's word. And he talks about it, uh, I won't go through all of them, but converting the soul or re-energizing the soul makes the wise, makes uh, makes the simple wise, it rejoices the heart, it is pure, enlightening, Uh, they endure forever. Okay, notice that, verse 9, they are enduring forever, which we'll talk about, which is going to be the theme tonight. They are enduring for all time. They are true and righteous all together. So we see these words given to describe Scripture. And then in verse 10, it's more to be desired than gold. Yea, much more than fine gold, sweeter than honey and honeycomb. And so he talks about the value of Scripture, the value of God's Word. He says in verse 11, Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from my secret faults. And then verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Psalm 19 is one of those psalms that talks about in in very real terms the Word of God and the importance of the Word of God. And then this this verse we've referred to multiple times, and we'll continue to put it up throughout the series, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It means that it is God-breathed, it is from God and initiated from God, it is inspired by God. Depending on the translation that you have tonight, some of the newer, more literal translations may actually say it is God breathed. Okay, and that is really the literal rendering of that of that word. We went through these last week as well, but just to kind of refresh our memories a little bit, Exodus thirty four twenty seven. Then the Lord said to Moses, "Write these words, for according to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with." Israel. Deuteronomy 31. So it was when Moses had completed writing the words of the law in a book where when they were finished. Okay again this idea of recording. Uh, Jeremiah 36. Take a scroll of a book and write down all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel against Judah and against all the nations from the day I spoke to you from the days of Josiah even to this day. And then Daniel talking about we talked about this one a little bit more extensively last week, but I, Daniel, understood by the books uh, the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So, Daniel, understanding that Jeremiah writing was in fact inspired, he was able to look at Jeremiah as a prophet from God, a spokesman for God, and be able to understand that the people were in the land for this period of time of 70 years. And Daniel understood Jeremiah to be inspired a spokesperson for God. Isaiah 30 verse 8, now go write it before them on a tablet and note it on a scroll that it may be for time to come forever and ever. So tonight we want to talk about, begin to understand translations, okay? English translations. We know that you're, I'm assuming that by this point uh, you're familiar that the original documents we do not have okay we've already talked about that but we have a tremendous amount of of manuscripts that have been copied they have been preserved we're going to talk about preservation tonight and we have a tremendous number of manuscripts that we are with great confidence and with great accuracy able to go back based on the manuscript evidence and be able to piece together reconstruct if you will what the original document said. And we looked at an illustration of that a few weeks ago now, three weeks ago, about the little boy losing the uh, letter that his father had written to him in the lunchbox. You were able to go back, take the copies of that letter, and really, with great accuracy, reconstruct what that original document said. So we shouldn't be afraid, we shouldn't be shaken by the fact when maybe friends of yours or family members of yours say, Well, you know, you don't have the original documents. And your response to that is, you're right. But we have, as we looked at comparing it to Plato and other ancient manuscripts, we have more um, documents, more manuscripts that verify the validity and accuracy of the New Testament than we do for all the other um, writings of that period of time. So we have great amount of confidence that we have reconstructed uh, documents that are very strong indicators of what those original documents said. Now, we also understand, unlike the person who a number of years ago argued with me adamantly that the original Bible was written in Latin, um, that is not true. Okay? The Latin Vulgate came much later. Uh, the original documents were written in, in Hebrew in the Old Testament. There is some segments written in Aramaic. And then the New Testament is written in what is called Koine Greek. Now, what is important to understand the word Koine is it means it was very uh, common Greek. It wasn't written in, um, you know, in our day, King James translation in particular, very, very high English. That was not Koine Greek. It was very basic Greek. It was Greek of the common man. It was written in a language where the people could easily understand. So we know that we have documents written in Greek, written in Hebrew. So does it mean that everybody should go and study Greek and Hebrew and become proficient at that? No, not necessarily. Okay, we can have great confidence in our English translations. But understanding that not only are there English translations, but there are French translations and Spanish translations and you're going to say something? Oh, Dutch translations. There are uh, Creole translations. There are any language, okay, the, the word has been translated, the scriptures have been translated into languages for people to understand around the world. Now, we're going to talk about the difference in philosophy, if you will, of translation tonight. How, why are some of the translations different? What different, what different methodology did they use? Um, we always want to talk about, a word-for-word translation. And we, we talked last week about the fact that there are times that words can be used to still deliver the same meaning. And some words are used the same, for instance, I'm going to give you an illustration in a minute, English words can be used to convey, in a different culture, a very different meaning. Have I told you about Dave Rudolph yet? I'm sitting in South Africa, and I'll give you two quick illustrations of this. He says to me, he says, so do you have anybody else on staff with you or when I was up in New England? I said, yeah, I have a guy named Brandon. He's, he's my assistant pastor. He said, well, what does he do? I said, he's kind of a morph. He does a variety of things. He does, he's a college campus guy. He, he does a bunch of different things. He said, he's a what? said, he's a morph. You know, he, he kind of changes. He does a lot of different things. He says, man, what kind of pastor are you? Jokingly. I said, what do you mean? What kind of I said, what do you mean? What are you getting at? He says, a morph? Really? You have a morph on your staff. I said, okay, Dave, what are you getting at? He says, morph here means homosexual. <laughs> he said, so you just told me and everybody sitting here that you have a gay person on your staff. It's like, uh, that's not what I meant. The worst one was, I'm sitting in a restaurant, and this waitress comes by. By the way, in South Africa, it goes like this. They will, you're going to wait about an hour before you can order, and then like people bring like Monopoly games or whatever to play, because they're not going to... And then once you're done eating, it's rude for them to bring the bill. So you'll sit there all day They will not bring it to you, because it's rude and offensive In their culture for them to bring you the bill because that would be like saying you know it's not you know get out you know we got to clean this table so a meal is going to take hours you're just going to assume you're going to be there a long time so we're sitting there and this waitress comes by and i said excuse me um can i get a napkin and she looked at me and she said what i said can i get a napkin please Well, Dave is like almost falling under the table. And so she's like offended and her face is like, she's literally backing up away from me like, okay, you're a creepy guy. And I'm like, okay, Dave, what did I just say? He said, at best, you just asked for a diaper. I won't tell you the at worst one, but there is an at worst one. Words can take on different meanings we can't assume that even in the english language not only do words take on different meanings, like the word wicked in new england that word means unique things there and it can be used for a variety of things positive or negative depending on the depending on the context the word means anything you want it to mean different languages even the same language the same word can take on different meanings. And not only that, meanings change, words change over time. For instance, the word conversation that comes up often in our King James James translation. You probably don't think about it so much anymore because it's probably been explained to you multiple times. Is that when he's talking about in certain passages where let your conversation be and he describes it, he's talking about your manner of life. The word has over time changed. So language really is fluid. It really, it really does evolve over time. It really does change. So we have to understand <clears throat> translations, where they came from, how to use them and all of that. So let's talk first about transmission. Okay, we're not talking about a car part, Harold. It's not that kind of transmission. Harold just got excited and we thought we were about cars. Um, but it's the copying by hand or print and transmit, translating of God's word as it passes down through different language groups. Okay, Deuteronomy seventeen eighteen says this, and it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from one before the priest, the Levites. By the way, Deuteronomy 17 is written in what historical context? What is going on in Deuteronomy? What, what is the setting of Deuteronomy? What is getting ready to happen? They're getting ready to go where? You're going to Canaan? Moses is getting ready to what? To die. He is giving his last word to the people that when you go into the land, and in chapter 17, he is telling them, way in advance. There's going to come a time, as a people, you're going to demand God to give you a what? A king. Way before they ever asked for it, Moses told them, Look, you're going to go into the land. You're going to ask God to give you a king like they've given to all the other nations. Moses is predicting that that is going to happen. And when you do that, this king needs to sit on his throne and write for himself a copy of this law. There has to be transmission. There has to be copying, there has to be this transmission of information and translation for him to write down this copy of the law. Why? So that he would know it, so that he would personalize it, so he would understand what God had said. Now we also, so there's transmission, which is the the host language or the base language being Greek and Hebrew, and then being transmitted into Chinese, Japanese, whatever, any known language that it can be translated into those languages for people to understand. Well, then we get into the question of preservation. The preservation of God's word is perfectly accomplished by God in heaven. Remember Psalm 119, which is an entire psalm on the word of God, verse 89 says this, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. There's a sense in which God's word from all eternity past and all eternity future, his word is settled. But now we understand that there is a progressiveness to revelation. Okay, what I mean by that is this. God's word has been forever preserved in heaven. Adam and Eve were not given an entire, what we've called, canon. The entire Bible was not given to Adam and Eve. They were given very simple revelation. God spoke to them personally, and God gave them one commandment. That's it, not ten, one. And their commandment was to not partake of this fruit. That was all of the revelation that they were responsible for. So there was a progressiveness in how God revealed himself to mankind in what we call different dispensations, where man was given more information about who God was. Later, he would call Abraham, and then he would work through the nation of Israel, and then he would later send Christ, and now today working through the church. The canon is closed, right? 96 AD or so, when Revelation was finished, the canon is closed, Revelation is closed there is no ongoing revelation. It finished uh, with the apostles, and so it is settled humanly as well. But it has been forever settled in heaven. Okay, God's word is settled forever in heaven. But now we have to talk about preservation on the human level. The preservation of God's word on earth is accomplished providentially through mankind, through Israel, and the church. Okay, It was... Guarded, preserved by Israel, by the church. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was set by the sanctuary of the Lord. Israel was given charge to watch over the word and to preserve it. And they did that, and they preserved it by copying it and making sure that it was protected. And then by the time we come to the New Testament, as the New Testament is being written, there are copies that are going throughout the known world at that time, and that the church then was entrusted with preserving God's word. And it was under, obviously, the protection of God as well. God's word was protected. It would be preserved on on earth as it has already been in heaven. Now... Fee Strauss write this. Every translation betrays the original text because it's impossible to communicate all the meaning with perfect clarity. What they're saying is this. They've written a a series of books talking about translation and other other topics. What they're saying is this. Anytime you are going from one language into another language, it is impossible to translate it perfectly. Okay, There, there are times that you're going from one language into another, that a word doesn't even exist for that. That, like, I don't know what it's like from English to Dutch or Dutch to English, but I've seen Cork be in the middle of a sentence and stop and say, I don't even know the English word for that. And then he starts talking Dutch and we just ignore him because we don't know what he's talking about. But there is, a, there is a reality to which there are certain things that are not translatable from one language. So I was flipping through the football games this afternoon, and one of the commentators said, you know, Tom Brady was on fire today. Okay, translate that literally. That poor man. He burned up in a football game today. What kind of country is that? If that idiom doesn't exist in the receptive language and you translate it word for word, the meaning is lost. It's not what that commentator meant. He meant something very different. So we have to understand that going from one language to another, it's not, it's not perfect word for it. I, I don't know Spanish very well. I know enough to get in trouble. Um, I, know, I know enough to get into a conversation, not enough to get out. Um, but I know enough about it to know that English and Spanish work very differently. Greek works very different than English. Greek is what's called a case-sensitive language. In other words, each word ends with an ending that tells you whether it's the noun or the verb, how it's functioning in the word depends on the ending, not on the position in the sentence like English. That's why in Greek, as I mentioned before, word order is irrelevant. It doesn't even matter. So whatever word you put first is the word you're emphasizing. You could put the verb first, ran to the store. Well, that would make sense in English, but you could put the verb you could put the verb first and make no sense in English, but yet in Greek it makes perfect sense. So no, no language, you can't go from one to another with absolute precision. But what you can do is translate the meaning of that, and we'll talk about that tonight in a couple of illustrations. Um, example, here's, here's an example here. Deuteronomy 32.10. We talked about this when we were doing our little mini-series on the end of Deuteronomy. He kept himself as the apple of his eye. King James, New King James, NIV, ESV, all translated that way. Apple of his eye is an English what? Idiom. It's an English figure of speech. Okay, the words, the the Hebrew is actually, as Nasby and Holman translate it, he guarded himself as the pupil of his eye. That is far more accurate. It's actually not even exact. But it's far more accurate than the apple of his eye. The word apple is not in that sentence. He guarded them as the new literal translation. He guarded them as he would guard his own eyes. Okay, that, though, that's, that's, we'll talk about the new literal translation in a bit. But the NASB is much more literal. But let me ask you, if he said that, he guarded himself as the pupil of his eye, do you know what he means? Kind of. But if he said to God, you were like the apple of his eye, does that convey the meaning to you more accurately? Yes, I think so. Because he's talking about how valuable you are, how important you are. So in this case, we have an idiom in English that if if you were looking at it, you would say they didn't translate it word for word. Well, because it didn't make sense to do that. It made better sense, it made better understanding of what the meaning was to translate it and i don't have a problem with the apple of his eye just understanding that that is really a figure of speech tom brady was on fire today okay um, i'm pulling your leg okay those are idioms example here's another example judges three fifteen. literally ehud was hindered in his right hand okay that is the literal hebrew translation all the English translated, King James, NASB, ESV, NIV, Holman, Christian, e, Ehud was a man left-handed. Is that what it says? It doesn't say that, does it? It says he, literally he was hindered in his right hand. Why did they translate it left-handed? Why? Well, they made some level of interpretation, didn't they? They made, all of them did. They made some level of interpretation. Might it be that he had an injury to his right hand? I, I don't know. But there was some level of interpretation made by all the major English translations, but literally he was hindered in his right hand. So no translation follows one translation philosophy exclusively. So what I want to do tonight is try to understand as we're working toward understanding philosophy of English translation and where they came from, what they mean, let me talk to you a little bit about translation philosophy. Okay? How did different translations, how were they translated? Which ones are good? Which ones should we you know, maybe consider a little bit differently? Well, the first, the first um, theory or philosophy is called formal equivalence. It is what we normally talk about as a literal or word-for-word translation. It seeks to reproduce the form or language of the original text as close as possible, not just the meaning. Okay, So this philosophy goes into the original languages and tries to stay within the form within how the words appear with as close to a word-for-word translation as it can get. Understanding, again, like in Greek... You're going to have to change word order, or else you're going to communicate something that you don't intend to communicate, but they try to stay consistent. This is textual-centered rather than reader-sensitive. What that means is this. It is a text-driven philosophy of translation. (coughs) It is not thinking, first first and foremost, about the reader, it's not necessarily thinking about how, how readable the translation is. The readability of it to the reader is, it's not that it's ignored, but it's not a primary factor in a formal, equivalent, or word-for-word translation. Jenna, here's, here's a couple examples. Genesis 1.1, we want a literal translation. Okay, in the beginning, he created God. That's the literal Hebrew. Who created God? Well, we have to understand the Hebrew sense, in the beginning, God created. Well, that's not word for word. You're right. But in this sense, what the Hebrew language was communicating was in the beginning, God created. That's the meaning. What about this one? Matthew 6, 9, literal translation, Father of us, the heaven, the in the heavens. Father of us, the in the heavens. That would be word for word. Well, the meaning is our Father in heaven. You see what I'm saying? You have to make sure that when you go in to understand what the language is conveying, understand how that language works, understand how you then translate it, and communicate what the original writer was actually saying. Uh, formal equivalence translators use a normal literal translation approach. A good formal equivalence translation is text-centered and reader-sensitive. Okay, so the philosophy is text-centered. It's all about the text. I agree. But we can't ignore the reader because somebody's going to pick this up, a kid or whoever, or a young person, new believer, they're going to pick this text up. They need to be able to read it. They need to be able to understand it. It needs to be written in such a way that they can read it and comprehend. So formal equivalent examples of English translations, King James, New King James, New American Standard, ESV. Those would be considered formal equivalent translations that went in very text-centered, tried to be as close to form as possible, as close to a word-for-word translation as possible. Those are the four English ones that follow that philosophy understanding that, again, none of them are purely that. They can't be. Okay? None of them are purely that, but those four are the four that generally um, follow that. If you're familiar with those four translations, New American Standard, for instance, I would say, as opinion, I would say is is more wooden to read. It is, it is very, very literal. It is very word-for-word, um, very good translation, but but to me it's it's less readable, okay? Because of it's a little less reader sensitive than some of the others. Whereas ESV would probably be more reader sensitive um, than the others. Now let's look at another philosophy. This is functional equivalence, also known as a dynamic translation. This seeks to reproduce the text meaning in good idiomatic or natural English. It gives precedence to the receptive language not the source language. So this one is very text-driven, okay? Don't let that description say that it isn't, but it is very sensitive to the source language. When I go to translate this, how is the person who speaks French or German or English or Japanese or whatever, how are they going to read it For us, an idiomatic or natural English. They're obviously sensitive to the text, but they have the reader in mind. They want to make sure that it is good, natural English. So it's a little less wooden. Functional equivalent seeks to translate meaning from one language into another, even if it means sacrificing word-for-word translation and original structure. So it, it's not driven as much by structure, not driven as much by an absolute word for it. And as we've already seen, no translation can be exactly word for word. It translates words, idioms, and gra- grammatical construction of the original into equivalents into the receptor language. So it tries to be very, uh, very consistent with the receptive language. It's reader-centered, but text-sensitive, okay? Now that may be strong to say it that way, but it is starting with the reader in mind. It wants to make sure that the text is readable. The functional equivalent example you're probably familiar with is the, is the NIV. Okay, that would be a formal, or excuse me, dynamic equivalent, uh, functional equivalent example is the NIV. Now I will tell you that doesn't mean that when I'm working through my own translation of a text, so if I'm translating Luke, whatever, and I'm working through it, and I've got on my computer four or five different versions of the Bible open, or they're on my desk, whatever. One of them is going to be NIV, and very often it is very consistent with the original language. So don't don't uh, think that it's not it's not word for word in places because it is, but it is more of a functional equivalent. Um, then there's the paraphrase. Okay, this is sort of a and this this is important to understand because. So far, of the, of the translations that we've mentioned, I would put them all in a category of... of trans, they are translations. They are text-driven. Um, they are based on the original language. But the paraphrases, uh, sort of subcategory under functional equivalents, we need to understand this is different. Okay, this is to make the language of the translation relevant and clear to the reader. A paraphrase attempts to capture the sense of the original text, opting for clarity rather than fidelity to its linguistic structure and vocabulary. So you could say it this way. A paraphrase takes a formal letter. Let's say the Declaration of Independence. It takes the Declaration of Independence and it's going to translate that into French. (coughs) The The other theories formal equivalents, dynamic equivalents, are going to try to translate the Declaration of Independence into French as close to the vocabulary, word-for-word translation, as close to the syntax of English to French as it can manage. It's going to try to stay true to the English. A paraphrase is not really driven by that. It is simply going to put in very general words, what the Declaration of Independence means. It's going to describe it for you. It's not worried about word-for-word translation. It is putting it into very common language without being driven by the linguistics or the vocabulary. Functional equivalent paraphrase is is more concerned with communicating spiritual truth in everyday English than remaining faithful to the exact meaning of the original languages. Paraphrases hope to express the spiritual truths of the Bible in something like the way the original authors would have done had they been writing in English. That comes from Shealy and Nash. So they're, again, very common language. Um, paraphrase. Paraphrase is reader-sensitive and not text-sensitive. Okay, It's not driven by the text. Um, some examples of that, Living Bible, New Living Translation, the Message, CEV, or the Contemporary English version. So, you know, people ask me, well, Pastor Jay, you know, what... What translations are you comfortable with? Which ones would you preach from? I would never preach from these. Okay? They're, they're not translations. They're, they're paraphrases. I own all of them. They're all on my shelf. It's not that they don't serve a purpose, but they're not a translation. So when somebody is, you know, I remember in previous ministry, we had an a ESL program, very strong ESL program. And we had all these PhD students coming from China um, to the University of Vermont to do postgraduate work, and so without advertising, without really trying to do this ministry, we had tons of Chinese people coming who wanted to learn English, and we would um, celebrate the Chinese New Year with them, did all this stuff for them. Well, we 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 had to find a version of the Bible that they could read. And and we taught them English through the Bible. So we used the CEV. We used that because the language was very conversational. The the message of the Bible was there. Okay, It wasn't a translation. But they couldn't couldn't understand the English of even an NIV or an ESV. They, They couldn't grasp that. And by the way, some of them came to Christ. Through hearing the gospel message and hearing about Christ and being able to read it, I remember walking into the room, it was one of the sweetest things I would see. We'd have one person for every two to three Chinese people, and they'd be scattered all over the place and just hear them reading the gospel story in English. And then the teacher stopping them and asking them, what, you know, what does that mean? What does that mean? And hearing them explain the gospel and come to know Christ. So, so do I find these helpful I view these kind of as commentary. That's how I view them. It would be like pulling the message off or the living Bible or whatever, pulling it off your shelf, not reading it as a translation, but reading it to see kind of what, what is a commentator, what is a commentary on this passage. That's how I would see it. I wouldn't preach from it. I wouldn't use it in pulpit ministry. I wouldn't use it for scriptural memorization, anything like that. But there is value to it and, and, and a use for it. Um, if you're familiar with the Holman Christian Bible, it's a relatively new translation. Um, they use a term in their introduction called the optimal equivalence view. And this comes, I have a quote for you from, their, from the introduction of the Bible. By the way, um, do this. Make sure that you know, when you're reading through a Bible, read the introduction to it. It'll tell you their philosophy of translation. How did they arrive at some of these conclusions? What, what philosophy did they use? So this comes from their... Introduction. Introduction. Translations are seldom, if ever, purely formal or dynamic, but favor one theory of Bible translation or the other to varying degrees. They go on to write this. Or optimal, optimal equivalence as a translation philosophy recognizes that form cannot be neatly separated from meaning and should not be changed unless comprehension demands it. In other words, you don't change it just to change it, You change it when you have to do it so comprehension can happen, when meaning can be conveyed. The primary goal of translation is to convey the sense of the original with as much clarity as the original text and the translation language permit. They go on and say this, optimal equivalence appreciates the goals of formal equivalence, but also recognizes its limitations. And so their philosophy is maybe, you could say it this way, a little bit more of a mix between between the two different philosophies, okay, and that comes from their their introduction. So to summarize all of that, <coughs> I put together um, a chart and try to walk through this a little bit so we can kind of solidify this in our, in our minds. What the what I am not saying is that we can, you know, we should question our English Bible. That's, that I'm I'm arguing the opposite. Okay, our English translations. Give us great confidence in the translation work that has been done that we can go in and understand the original text translated from the original languages into English or whatever the source language you read, Dutch or whatever, that I can read it and uh, comprehend it, understand it, apply it, live it with confidence knowing that in fact what I have is God's word. So let me just give you the summary chart. God is the divine author of scripture. Okay, God, this is a God book. God wrote it. Okay, it wasn't written by men, it wasn't written by a council. It was written by God. He is the author of Scripture. You could think about it as the big A of Scripture. Then notice my little arrow. It's like got fire around it or whatever. Talking about divine activity. Okay, God revealed to mankind to the human authors. Notice, on purpose, I did not capitalize them. Okay, they're not divine. Only God's divine. But God, God breathed. I, had a, I was at a conference this weekend. And the guy, we we're talking about inspiration, actually. And he used an illustration of Lucy from Peanuts. And if you are reading the, 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 uh, the comic strip of Lucy... And Lucy begins to speak. She begins to talk. And you have this little cloud thing over her head, right? And it says in big, bold letters, Charlie Brown, you're a blockhead, right? Those are her words. That little cloud that comes out of her mouth in the comic, thats Lucy breathed. It came from Lucy. It came out of her. Okay, that's his illustration. If you don't like it, that's fine. I stole it from him. So it's Lucy This is breathed out from God. It came from God's mouth. It came from God himself. And he gave this message to mankind. Moses, write this down. Isaiah, record what I'm getting ready to tell you. Now, we also know that within the human writer's, that God did allow them to write in their own personality. They write differently. They write, um, Paul writes very differently than John, for instance. But he used, he worked in mankind to give us the autograph. The original document of Scripture was divine. It was the result of God working in the hearts of these writers. And now, notice my little fire went away. We have translations of that. And, and I've said this before, but understanding the value of translations, one of the clearest, one of the clearest indicators to me of the value of translators, translations is this. The Septuagint. Okay, it's a big word. The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. So understanding the Old Testament written in Hebrew that New Testament readers, some of them, they read Greek. They didn't know, not all of them knew Hebrew. So it was translated from Hebrew into Greek. Translation called the Septuagint. What is fascinating is the New Testament writers, under inspiration, quote, almost verbatim, The Septuagint, they quote the translation under inspiration of God. Very interesting. So this translation is preserved. It is God's word under the doctrine of preservation, the Holy Spirit preserving God's word. It's preserved forever in heaven. But on human terms, um, it is preserved through translation. And so then we are the recipient We are the ones who read it, understand it, the work of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that moved in the writers to write the autographs, works in us to bring us illumination so that we can understand the Scripture. So let's fill in some terms here and understand what this means. Okay, the process of revelation. God revealed to mankind. Sometimes God spoke. He spoke to Moses face to face. Sometimes he used dreams He used a variety of means to reveal his message to the human writers. As I mentioned earlier, this process of revelation is completed. There is no new revelation. Revelation is closed when the canon closed, when the apostles ceased. Then in scripturation, this process of the word of God being written down in the original documents, which we have called the product of revelation or the autograph. Okay, that was revelation from God. It was written down, and then through transmission and translation, it went from the host language, Greek and Hebrew, and was translated into other known languages for us to be able to read and understand English being one of them. And then there is the preservation and illumination, which is still a work of the Holy Spirit of God. Okay, God's word is settled forever in heaven, and God's word is going to be preserved on this earth through the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God. We know in even places like China, I remember when I was there, heard stories about how everybody's Bible was taken from them. And they, were, they, they had gone into certain areas and tried to confiscate them. And what they would do is that they would, they would tear pages out of their Bibles, they would tear books out of their Bibles... And they would pass them around so they wouldn't get caught with the complete Bible. And then there was an older lady in this one town that for her 90th birthday or whatever, um, as the the tension sort of eased up, they went around and they collected all the copies of those those Bibles that they had torn out of of pages and passed them around, that they collected them all again and they gave this woman back her completed Bible. God's going to preserve his word. The preservation of God's word is promised to us. It is going to be available to mankind to know and understand and to, and to read. That is really cool. That is not mine. American Heritage Girls, that's pretty cool. That's not mine. I think that was my fault, actually, Melissa. Um, so can we go back to the last slide? As fun as that is. Aw. There we go. That's all the way at the beginning he go to slide 53 or whatever thirty five whatever it is um, but that summary slide I hope um, gets you to understand and see this this how this process works um, I'll say this carefully I, I I've been on the mission field some and short term obviously I, I've never I've never I've never been there for any length of time. But I've been in cultures that are non-English speaking. And I can remember, I always ask questions to the missionaries, and I can remember asking a couple of them, um, what's some of the biggest problems you face on the mission field? One of the saddest answers that I've gotten, unfortunately, more than once, is Americans coming to those places demanding That the people of those cultures learn English so that they can really have the scriptures because the scriptures are only preserved in English. That is so untrue. Or that their translation into their language has to come from English translations, not from the Greek and Hebrew. Folks, that's wrong. That's wrong. American culture, Amer- English is only one language that God has preserved his word. I'm not bilingual. I, I can't read and know other languages. I-, I wish I could. But for us to say that the English translation is superior to a French translation or a Spanish translation or a Dutch translation, if they have been translated from the host language, from the basic Um, from the the foundational languages of the text, Greek and Hebrew, they've been translated from good, solid manuscripts. It doesn't have to go through English to get there. It should be translated from the text, word for word, as close as possible, preserving preserving the, the flow of the text, preserving the syntax of the text as closely as the other host language permits, and then taking that, translating it into the host language so that those people can read it and understand it in their own language. Um, you, you know, we support folks. That, that is what they do. They, they go and they, they translate the Bible. They translate it from the original text into these different languages. And so we have to be careful. And understand that God has done this in English. And he's provided for us multiple good English translations to read, to compare, to understand. But he's done the same thing in other host languages as well. He's done it in French. He's done it in Dutch. He's done it in Chinese. You think about that. That God's word, the inspired word of God, can be read and known, understood, and applied in languages that are spoken all over this world. That's amazing. That is God preserving his word so that when believers, I'll never forget the service I attended in China. And I wasn't supposed to be there, obviously, and we're up in this room, way away from everybody, couldn't be seen, couldn't be heard. These pastors were there illegally too. I shouldn't be saying that on on the video. It happened a long time ago. Um, And we're sitting there and these men opening their Bible and reading it together in, in their native tongue in Chinese. I couldn't understand it. I couldn't understand it. But, but, but I could see the passion that they preached it. And I could see the conviction in their souls. And I could see their commitment to the same word that, that I'm reading, that I'm, that I'm trying to live, that I'm applying, that God's preserved it in their language too. That's amazing. That's amazing to think that when I open my English Bible that I can read the words in my language that God wants me to know. The words that God wants me to live. And I can take this English translation and I can, as your pastor, stand before you and say, this is what God said. And this is what we need to live. And this is what we need to do. This is what God said. It's not my opinion, it's not based on me, it is based on the God-breathed word of God. And I can say it because of this, that I can tell you this is what God intended for you to know about him. This is what God wants you to live in your life. The word of God is powerful than any two-edged sword. The Word of God changes lives, and the Word of God by god's divine intervention, we have it His preserved word, so that we can know it, obey it, and live for him. Let's pray, Father in heaven, we thank you tonight for our opportunity to study together and God I, I pray that as we think through these issues of translation that you would help us to understand how how it works, how it came about Lord. That you have divinely spoken, that you have given to us your your exact words, and Lord, we know that we can read this and understand this, and yet sometimes we don 't live it. Lord help us to be doers of the word, not just hearers, but to be active in our obedience to what your word says. God, I ask as we continue on in this study this is the last time in a couple of weeks as we finish it, Lord, that you would Uh, use this in our hearts, that we'd have confidence in our English Bibles, that we would come to the Scripture with great confidence knowing that we have your Word, and then be able to proclaim it and teach it and live it. We ask that you would go before each one tonight as we depart and go our separate ways this evening, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.